the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday show. We survived our first week of school here in Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And we finished another week on the radio program. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. Questions of the Bible, questions on what we believe as Christians or why we believe it. Uh, anything and everything. Maybe you're going through something in your life. The Bible has an answer. We'll do the best that we can to provide those answers. Here's the way that you contact us. Dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them in that way and we'll get them very, very quickly. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just um, hit call now and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Because it's Friday, of course, we have our Friday night Bible study here tonight. I'm going to be in finishing Acts chapter 21. Um, this Sunday, of course, we continue in the Gospel of Luke. It's Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. A uh, quick programming reminder, on Monday, because it's Labor Day, uh, our program will be a rebroadcast of an earlier program, and uh, we hope that you have a great long weekend and honor the Lord with it. We get to do a neat thing here Sunday after church. Uh, I can't remember. It's 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock, but we, we have a wedding. Uh, 4 o'clock, I'm just told. We have a wedding. One of our young men who's literally grown up in this church, I've known him his entire life, and uh, we're going to be uh, doing his wedding uh, on uh, on Sunday afternoon. Uh, and, and it's just thrilling to watch this happen. The, the, the young girl, her name is Christiana, that God brought into Isaac's life, is an absolute treasure, an absolute treasure. And and so uh, we get to enjoy this time with them. Every day I come in and say, oh, there's only three more days. Today's only two more days. And uh, he's looking a little bit nervous now, but he's really excited about it. So this is going to be a big weekend for us here at Calvary Chapel. Well, let's get right to some questions today, and we'd love your phone calls. If you can help us finish the week with your phone calls, it's a better program. Here is a question from Nacho from our mobile app. He says, what is the meaning of the branch to the nose in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 17? Uh, let me read the verse, uh, Nacho, and then I'll, I'll try to answer it. He said, uh, he said to me, uh, have you seen the sentiment? This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Is it a trivial matter that for the house of Judah to do the detestable things that they're doing here? Uh, must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Now, obviously, what's being described here 
uh, are the uh, uh, religious leaders of Israel who are now being swept in by the religious practices of the pagans. Uh, this is a neat chapter because it's almost as though we're inside um, uh, the mind of, of some of these people and we're, we're able to kind of peer through the walls of their brain and their heart to see the detestable things that are going on. Now, uh, relative to the branch to their nose, there's no other scripture reference to this statement at all. Uh, um, quite candidly, no one knows what it means. It could be uh, a method of, of snorting drugs uh, that would, would cause them to hallucinate. Um, it, it could be noses, uh, branches through the nose, wood through the nose. We've seen that in other cultures. Um, but the only thing that we know for sure is that it was something that they did part of their worship rituals to idols. And the people of God should never be worshiping idols. But we can't know with any certainty at all what that is. We can be certain of one thing and one thing only here, Nacho, and that's whatever this was, it was repulsive to God. It was just one of those things that uh, that believers should not be doing, or God's people should not be doing. By the way, it's why they were always being warned about. It's why they were always being warned about um not associating with foreigners and those who worshipped idols. Unfortunately, they didn't listen. Here is a question from our email inbox from Charles. Dear Sir, Charles, I'm old, but I'm not that old. So next time, um, just Ron or Pastor Ron is fine. Uh, Does the following verse mean that the thief went to heaven on the same day that Jesus Christ was crucified? Here's the verse he's referring to, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, Charles, it doesn't mean heaven as you and I understand heaven. Um, In Luke chapter 16, there is a story that Jesus tells. This is not a parable. It's a story about the rich man and Lazarus dying on the same day, the rich man going to the place of torment and Lazarus going to the place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Um, in one place, obviously, it was terrible. In the other place, it was it was really, really a pleasant place, a rewarding place to be. Uh, and when Jesus told the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise, that's the compartment that he was talking about. We know that because Jesus, in the time between his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. We call it the abyss. The Greek word is abuso. It means there's a place in the center of the earth somewhere where the righteous dead were being held in comfort and the unrighteous dead were being held in torment. Righteous because they believed in Jesus, unrighteous because they didn't believe the word of God. And so that's what Jesus meant. And he would go down there and he would set those captives free. Now, even though they were in a place called paradise, it was a great place. Jesus would go down and deliver a victory speech, according to First Peter, He'd deliver a victory declaration. And then he would take those captives and set them free. And what he would do is he would then take them to heaven. But that wouldn't occur until after his resurrection. But prior to that, he went down and preached this message. And of course, the very day that he was crucified. He and the thief on the cross who received Jesus Christ was there. So that's what he's talking about. Uh, Not heaven as we understand it. Uh, Heaven is being in the presence of Jesus. Heaven is a place uh, we always look up when we pray. Paul describes it as the third heaven, the abode of God. Um, And that's where we will be going. Uh, We don't have to wait like those who were in paradise did. Uh, we will go instantly into that presence when we die. So the thief on the cross. Can I say one other thing, Charles, about this question that you didn't ask? One of the things that always strikes me, and it, uh, when I say strikes me, it's just something I can never get over. I think about both thieves on the cross. They were equidistant from Jesus. Both of them could hear everything Jesus said. Both of them would have been able to hear all of the accusations, all of the insults that were directed toward Jesus. They would have seen how he responded or failed to respond. They would have seen his humility. They would have seen his strength and his courage watching him die. And yet only one of the two 
allowed what they saw and what they heard to change their heart. And the difference is literally heaven or hell. And I, I think of that often because we hear the same things. You know, in church, uh, wherever it is you go to church, here at Calvary Chapel this Sunday, there will be people who are sitting next to one another. One will have the Word of God through the Spirit of God convict them deeply. And another will just be here sort of passing time. What's the difference? The difference is one would hear, the other refused to hear. And I always think of this, Charles, because what I want people to do is be those men and women who are available to be touched by God rather than just, well, I come to church and sort of cross that off my Christian to-do list. But I want people to come and hear from God, not from Pastor Ron, but I want to be here from the Lord. And I'm always amazed that while some people will let things change their lives, others will simply refuse. I think about the thief who rejected Jesus a lot. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Richard from our mobile app. He said, will you please explain this statement in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Um, this is um, the rich young ruler and Jesus. And here's the, the verse. It says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, uh, the, the question is really important. Rabbis believed and taught that there was no one good, just God just God. And that's what Jesus uh, responds. And when the rich young man, uh, rich young ruler, ran up to him and fell on his knees, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, by calling Jesus good, he was acknowledging who Jesus was. I've heard you teach. I've seen the things you've done. I've been watching you, and it is clear, he said to anybody who's, who's, who's got eyes, that you are sent from God. That's what he meant. And so Jesus makes him super accountable. Now remember, Jesus knew what this young ruler was going to ask. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this is basically a way of saying Jesus saying, are you sure you want me to answer your question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so in verse 18, he's simply putting him into a position of accountability. You call me good? You know I'm God? Now here's the question. Are you going to do what I tell you to do? Now we know how this one turned out. You know, Rich, one of the things that we have to deal with a lot in our interpersonal conversations with people relative to the things of God, whether it's counseling sessions or or just conversationally. If you know what God tells you to do, are you going to do it? And And the honest answer from too many professing Christians as well. Oh, well, let's see, what does he say? We, we want to decide whether we're, we're going to do what God tells us to do. That's what this rich young ruler is doing. And we know at the end of this, he walked away sad. And the reason he was sad is because he didn't do what Jesus told him to do. What did Jesus tell him to do? Sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And yet he had this approach to God, at least he thought it was an approach to God, that I'm a good person, tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, oh, all these things I have done since my youth. Well, those were the horizontal commandments from man to man. Jesus didn't even go to the vertical commandments from man to God. You know, he didn't say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. He just, this is the one that deals with men. And he said, well, I've done all that since I was a boy. And yet he was still missing something. And Jesus put his finger right on that something. He said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Now, that's not Jesus saying that we have to give away all of our stuff. But what Jesus was doing was acknowledging, look, you come to me, you know who I am, I'm God. You ask me what you have to do, I tell you what to do, and I know you're not going to do it because you have great wealth and you're more attached to your wealth than you are to your God. 
In other words, this man's possessions possessed him. In spite of the fact, according to the verse you asked about, Rich, in spite of the fact that he knew that Jesus was God, the Christ, the Messiah, he didn't do what he was told to do. Sometimes it seems like in the 2,000 years since this story was told, things haven't changed very much, doesn't it? So I hope that answers your question, Richard. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's take a question from Anonymous. My parents don't want me to get a tattoo, even though I told them you said tattoos weren't sinful. How can I convince them? Anonymous, you're not going to get me into your trap here. Um, let me tell you something Ephesians 6.1 says very, very clearly. Children, obey your parents. And I don't care if you are 8, 18, or 28, if you live with your parents, if you're under their authority, you have to obey them. It says it's right. It pleases the Lord when we do that. So the answer to questions is, if your parents don't want you to get one, don't use me to barter your position. Just don't get one. Wait till you're on your own and independent, and then you can make your own choices. I doubt that your parents would would argue that tattoos are sinful. You want one, they don't want you to have one. Parents trump kids, do what they tell you to do. And if you do that, you'll demonstrate your love for the Lord. And you'll be in a position where he can bless you. And then when you're old enough to do what you want and you can pay for it with your own money, then you can do what you want to do. But until then, your parents are like a little G-God in your life. I know we don't like that in our church culture, but your parents are the ones that you have to obey. Here is another anonymous question. Pastor Ron, why is it that so many believers do things the Bible says are wrong? I hear a lot of my Christian friends talking about the things they do, and the Bible says, uh, what the Bible says is really clear, um, that those things are forbidden. Uh, Anonymous, the same answer as the one with the rich young ruler just a few moments ago. The truth is that we don't do what God tells us to do because we don't want to do them. That's because our hearts grow hard. Remember when Korah rebelled against Moses and the Spirit sort of picked him and his family out and then the ground swallowed them up? Well, if God was still doing that, we probably would be a lot more careful about being obedient. But you see, with all of the talk of grace, and there's nothing wrong with talking about grace, we should, we should trumpet the message of grace everywhere we go. But we misunderstand grace, and in the process we cheapen it And because God isn't swallowing us up with holes or because he's not calling down lightning from heaven to devour us, we think that it's okay for us to do some of the things that we want to do. I'm with you. I hear people in our church talking about some of the things that they watch and some of the things that they do. And I'm thinking, Jesus, where are you in all of that? But you see, they belong to him and not to me. So here's the thing for you, Anonymous, you be the one that walks in righteousness. Not so that other people will see your righteousness, but that they'll see your light. You be the one that others can point to and say, well, you know, he or she is always faithful. And then let God use your testimony, use your witness to convince others that what they're doing is wrong. As they see the blessings of God poured out in your life, they'll wonder why those blessings aren't available to them, and the Holy Spirit will be there to convict them. Now, if you hear people talking about things, and this is an important thing, it's a hard thing, and they're talking about doing sinful things, it's our responsibility, it really is our duty, to confront people, not in judgment, but in love, and just say, wait a minute, you're a Christian, you can't do these things. And then talk about it with them. Let them know you're praying for them. But let your stand for Jesus be that which God uses to convict them of the sin of their actions. One of the most painful things that I deal with as a pastor on an everyday basis, and I mean this literally every day, is the mess people's lives 
fall into or become simply because they don't care what God said or they willfully disobey what God said and they do it anyway. And anonymous, it gets back to there's more fundamental issues than this. There are just far too many Christians. I'm talking about false Christians and real ones. But we don't read our Bibles. We're not interested in knowing what God says is good and what God says not to do. So we want to pretend God's okay with whatever we do. Well, I'm a child of God, and God loves me, so he's with me. I got goosebumps last week at church, so I know I'm okay. That's why the word is so important. How do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? Unless we know the word. How do we know what Jesus' character is like? How do we know what holiness is all about unless we know the word? That's how important it is, synonymous. And when you see something that is clearly wrong and somebody's doing what you know they shouldn't be doing, if you care for them, you'll privately pull them aside and confront them with the truth and love. And still they're going to make their own choice and still you're going to decide or they're going to decide, not you, what the result of that is going to be. Here is a question from Wanda. Wanda says, how do you respond when someone says the Bible is misogynistic? Uh, That means unfair to women, men, uh, ruling over women. I say... um, uh, From the man's point of view, we misunderstand what headship means. But don't blame Jesus for that, because the Bible does put men in a position of authority over women in the church and in the home. No place else, but in the church and in the home. Now, that's not removing rights from a Christian woman. Um, All Christians, we have no rights. We're not our own. Paul says we're bought with a price. So what we do, in fact, our Bible study tonight here in uh, Acts chapter 21, we're going to see Paul willingly giving up his rights to try to accomplish something that he would consider the greater good. If the Apostle Paul can give up his rights, why can't we? I think, Wanda, one of the things that we do here is we get so caught up in the arguments from the world that we live in And again, not to beat this dead horse in the last question, but because we don't know the Word of God well enough. The arguments of the world make sense. Well, nothing makes sense if it violates the Word of God. Paul says the result of the curse is that there is an order, a headship. Jesus, even through the Apostle Paul, submitted to the headship of his Father while he was human here on earth. The Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. So if Jesus himself submitted, he who is God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Why is it so hard for us? So what I tell somebody when they say that, I just tell them, look, the Bible, Christianity, Christ in particular, has elevated women in this world like no one ever before since. He's the one who gave authority. Now, if we're all equal, no male, no female, no Jew or Greek, no slave, nor free, we're all one in Christ, why does there have to be this whole sense of submission? Well, the answer is because there has to be order in our lives. And for better or for worse, this is what God did to establish order. And he made the husband the head of the house. He made the pastor the head of the church. And the rest of us are asked to submit. Do we want to submit? Of course not. When Paula used to counsel, well, she still does, but she used to say all the time, is it okay with you if I tell him I hate submitting to you? Of course it's okay. Everybody hates submitting. But we do it for Jesus and he did it first for us 
So Wanda, usually my response is as though I'm dealing with a cynic, somebody who's not asking an honest question. And if they mean submission to the husband, well, that's a safe place because that's the place where Jesus is. It doesn't mean your husband's smarter. It doesn't mean your husband is more spiritual. It doesn't even mean he makes better decisions. In fact, because I know the husbands in our church, I recognize that that really, really, really keeps the women close to God because submitting to their husbands is hard. Their husbands have no idea many times where they're going. They're hot one day and cold the next. Inconsistencies are legion. But you see, if you trust Jesus, exercise your faith. Peter uses the example of Sarah submitted to a man that tried to give her away twice. She came out pretty well. So that's how I respond, but a lot of that would depend on whether the question was perceived as being honest or not. Well, the phones are quiet. We love your live calls. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions are toll-free. 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our last half hour of the week a reminder that on monday because it's labor day we will have a rebroadcast we will not be here live so maybe you ought to work harder to get your calls in now let's go to our first call ron from mason county on line one thanks for calling you're on the air appreciate you pastor ron i just got uh, in reference to the guy that was talking to you about the rich young you ruler in mm-hmm. our present walk with the lord can you put that in context to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where he always uh, give us a way out of the hard temptations? <laughs> uh, I've never made that connection, Ron, but, but it really does work. You know, the, the, the rich young ruler specifically, Jesus gave him the way out. He answered the question directly, and the way out was, follow me. Uh, and he went away sad. Well, for for all of us, in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen, Ron is a verse that I use repeatedly uh, because when we're tested, and, and the word there for testing or tempting is interchangeable, so it can be used both ways. Uh, it, it just indicates that that there's a way out of every test, out of every temptation. We don't have to give in. Uh, we don't have to be bound to the things that cause us the difficulties. And um, in in uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, a very carnal church, by the way, uh, he was simply letting them know that you may be going through some temptations, you may be going through some hard times, but don't worry, none of that is unique to you. That's why he says, um, uh, no temptation will seize you except that which is common to man. And then the thing that we need to learn is the next words, and God is faithful. My Bible doesn't say, and Pastor Ron is faithful. It says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand. In other words, so that you can have victory over the temptation. That's a, a, a passage, Ron, that guarantees that we need never again be overcome by sin. Now, because we're flesh and because we have moments of weakness, we will. John says when we do that, it's okay. We have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And then we're right back on that solid ground as he purifies us from all unrighteousness. But the whole point of that is to help us to stand the next time we're tempted through the temptation. And God will always provide a way out when we're in one of these difficult things. And for the rich young ruler, the way out was Jesus saying, follow me. For you and for me, Ron, it's, it, it, it might be other things. But he always provides an escape route if we'll take it. I always think of Joseph in Genesis running away from the scene when Potiphar's wife grabbed his robe and, and literally undressed him because she wanted to have sex with him. And he says, how can I do this thing and sin against God? 
Well, the way out for him was to run. Well, from some for some of us, the way out is to run. I had a question earlier in the week um, uh, from somebody who was smoking. You know the way out of that temptation? You believe God wants you to stop smoking? Be with Jesus. When, when the temptation comes to smoke, you and Jesus walk the other direction. Ron, it's why I believe that Jesus, in his model for prayer, said, among other things, he said, and pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, if we're following Jesus, if he's doing the leading, we're going to be walking in the opposite direction of temptation. Too often we go into the direction of temptation and then wonder why we fall. And if we're following Jesus, we're going to be on solid ground. So the rich young ruler had an opportunity um, and he didn't take advantage of it. Thanks, Ron. appreciate the call. Let's go again to San Antonio now for Ravar online too. Ravar, good to hear from you again. Yeah, good to hear from you too, Pastor. I'm glad you're doing well. Thank you. I have a question. Um, I was going through Exodus. It was the um, chapter and verses where Moses meets God at the burning bush. Mm-hmm. And God asked Moses to deliver the message, you know, let, let my people go, let Israel go. And he explicitly told Moses that, you know, if he doesn't do this, I'm going to harden his heart, but if he doesn't do this, he, he made explicitly known the threat that he will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. But Moses didn't ever say that until, like, six iterations over. Why is that? I mean, was that God, God just told him, you know, like, the extended version or the short version up front? Or, like, that was one thing I wanted out. Thank you, Rivar. If you look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, in this whole conversation, um, God is declaring that I know. I mean, you go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. But I know that he will not let uh, Israel go unless a mighty hand compels him to do so. So that's God basically, because he knows the end from the beginning, it's God basically telling Moses, don't get your hopes up. This isn't going to happen instantly. You're going to go to him and he's going to lay down and everything will be okay. But but what he's going to do is he's going to have a series of tests that Pharaoh is going to be submitted to. And eventually the, the, the killing of the firstborn is going to be the uh, the judgment that, that, that breaks his back, the, the mighty hand that compels him to do so. So in the conversation, God lives outside of time and space. He knows the end from the beginning. He's simply informing Moses that this isn't going to be a simple thing. And basically, he's giving Moses sort of an abridged version of all of the ten plagues on Egypt until they finally are going to work. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Good. Thank you, Brad. My pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Exodus chapter 3, by the way, is a great chapter for all of us. We ought to know because it deals exclusively with the call of God. And for those of you out there struggling with what's God got in his plans for me? What's God's will for my life? Read that chapter about 10 times, and I promise you the Lord will start giving you some clarity. Just respond as Moses did. Let's go to another caller from San Antonio, Sylvia, on line three. Sylvia, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, yes. Thank you so much. God bless me for anything, and thank you thank for your time. And I just wanted to call, and, and I was listening to the program, and it caught my attention. There was an anonymous call um, where they wanted to know that it was okay, and they said that you were okay, saying that there was no hurting in uh, getting that tattoo. And mm-hmm. I, I am sorry, but I have, uh, I, I'd like to share this with this person, the anonymous, and I hope they're still listening. In Leviticus 19, verse 28, mm-hmm. it says very clearly, You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. It is yeah, very Sylvia. stated by God. Yeah, Sylvia, but, but that's a misunderstanding of, of what Leviticus 19 is saying. I'm aware of, of uh, Leviticus 19, um, but, but, but the understanding of tattoos in the worship of the dead or in the worship of false idols uh, in the time that Leviticus was written is far different from what we consider tattoos. So the tattoo, uh, that we, go to, we go to the tattoo parlor and get a tattoo. Uh, it's, not, it's not even close to the same thing. And unfortunately, tattoo 
is a really, really bad translation of the Hebrew there, and it's really a cutting of the of the skin, a cutting of the body, uh, in in uh, the worship of false idols or in the worship of the dead, which is exactly what all of the pagan peoples around Israel did. And remember, the laws that were given to Israel were given to distinguish them from uh, the peoples around them, to set them apart as belonging to God. So it's it's not fair to say that, that our modern body art uh, is the equivalent of uh, the Leviticus 19 uh, translation of you're not to tattoo yourself. So it's not what we do. It's, it's always in the context there in the worship of false idols or in the, the, the conjuring up of the dead spirits. Well, I, I see what you're saying. However, the Bible is not for us to accommodate it to our, our days. No, but you have to understand it. And it is to remain because God is God and has always been. Yeah, but Sylvia, you have to understand it. You're 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 not listening. You have to understand the intent of the author. And the intent of the author, Moses, was not to come, you know, 5,000 years in the future. And and just because the word is translated tattoo uh, from the Hebrew, uh, we're to rightly divide the word of God, studying to show ourselves approved. And if you understand the, the Old Testament law that way, well, then what you end up doing is you get caught up in, a, in, a, in such a legalistic world that, that wouldn't permit you to eat shellfish. It wouldn't permit you to eat pork. It wouldn't permit you to do all the things that Jesus has said that we are now free to do. So uh, I would just ask you to study it a little bit more in depth and um, um, understand that the, the, the author's intent uh, is far more important than our legalistic or narrow view of what the Word says. So, uh, Sylvia, thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. One of the reasons that we have to be students of God's Word we have to be men and women, as I said, who rightly divide the word. It's because we can get caught up. And when God was giving the law, uh, I'll give you another example, Sylvia, if you're still listening. Um, God said to worship on the Sabbath. That's not for us. That was for Israel. So too was the Levitical laws for Israel. It wasn't for you, Sylvia, and it wasn't for me. So here's what we do. We walk in the freedom that we've been given. And if you don't like tattoos, and and, and by the way, I don't have a single tattoo on my body. I'm pain averse, so I'm not defending tattoos I have or anything. Um, If if it hurts, I'm never going to do it. But I'm free to do that as are other people. And for us to look at people with tattoos, especially those who get them after they become Christians... Uh, as though they are somehow in violation of the the, the spirit of, of the law or of the will of God is to, to stand in the place of judgment. Be a better student. Understand what the Old Testament law is all about and to whom it's written. And then rejoice in the fact that Jesus canceled the law for us. In the upper room, just before he died, he said... This is the new covenant. He lifted the cup. This is the new covenant, canceling the old. This is the new covenant written in my blood. All things are new. And we can enjoy the freedom that sometimes those under the law could not enjoy. Let's go to Cindy from San Antonio Online One. Thanks for calling. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. You know, it's funny that... Hi, it was funny that first question was about the um, the thief on the cross with Jesus because I was wondering if he instantly went to heaven and the reason I was thinking about that was because um, Pentecost hadn't happened yet. So I was wondering about the people who died in between the time that Jesus was resurrected and Pentecost happened. Did they get the Holy Spirit? But I guess maybe they did if they went to heaven. I don't know. It was, it was just something that was kind of tangled up in my head. Yeah, um, let, me untang- I, let me untangle it, Cindy. Thank you. Uh, they didn't go to heaven, as I said to the, to the other question. As we understand heaven, they went to paradise. It's a great place, but it's not heaven. 
Uh, and of course, Jesus then descended into paradise and set them free, and he took them in his train as captives, but you know, glorious captives, but captives nonetheless, he took them to heaven. So that's when they saw heaven, and um, Pentecost has nothing to do with that. Uh, the moment that the thief on the cross died, he went to paradise. The other thief who rejected Jesus went to the place of torment, also depicted for us in Luke chapter 16. And um, 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 now that place called paradise is empty because now when we die, we immediately go into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body, Paul writes, is to be present with the Lord. Uh, and 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 we're we're with Jesus, and that's what we call heaven. So it's not heaven up in the sky, the third heaven. Uh, it was paradise where he went, and Jesus descended into those lower parts on that day to take them to heaven. They had to be ushered into heaven. So Pentecost is something different. Um, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to mankind. So uh, the two things are separate issues altogether. Cindy, thank you very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Ken. Uh, After listening to your study on Wednesday about Absalom's death, did God show us how Jesus would die on the cross through the example of Absalom hanging in a tree? Absalom rode a donkey. Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. Absalom was murdered. Jesus was murdered. Absalom's murders didn't listen to his father. The Jews did not listen to their father. Absalom was stabbed with three javelins. Jesus was nailed with three nails. Absalom beaten by soldiers. Jesus was beaten by soldiers. Absalom hung from a tree. Jesus hung on a tree, etc., etc., etc. Ken, I, I think that's way too mystical a view of this. I think we can look for those kinds of of comparisons, uh, but there, there was nothing typical about Absalom's death at all. I think more um, with Absalom's death. I think more with Absalom's death, it was a matter of of uh, serving as a warning. Um, the fact that his head was caught in the trees, and the King James and the New King George, he was he was hanging between heaven and hell. Uh, I, I think that was a frightful warning to a lot of us. We try to get through life doing what we want, and we find ourselves hanging between heaven and hell. And we've got to make that choice while we're here on earth. So uh, Absalom, because he was so evil, um, um, because his motives were so selfish, um, his intent to murder his father, um, he, he wouldn't have been a picture or a type of Christ at all. Um, had it been reversed and it was David, then that might have been a situation, or Joseph, or some of the others. But uh, the, the pictures of Jesus' death are pictures of, of um, that use God's people. Absalom certainly was not. Uh, I think Absalom hanging there was just a warning to all of us. But it's a good question, and I love the fact that you're studying your Bible. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Brian. He says, "I don't see what's wrong with changing morals." Why should we be stuck with rules from ancient times? Brian, if 2,000 years ago is ancient, um, you don't understand much about history. Um, the reason that we should be stuck with rules from those times is because those rules were established by God. You see, here's what's wrong with changing morals. Brian, we put ourselves in the place of God. We decide what we can do and what we can't do. We have no accountability to any higher power at all. And as I say that, you all know there's only one higher power. His name is Jesus. But he gets to make the rules. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the one who gave us life. He's the one who brought us out of sin. And he's a king. Now, we live in sort of a democracy... And in our culture, especially among younger people, but, but we were all young once, and when we were young, we all went through this, but we come to a place where we feel it's our responsibility to challenge rules. And there are some rules that don't make any sense. 
And yeah, I guess it's okay to challenge some of those rules. But remember, all of God's rules make sense. The short answer to your question, Brian, is you're not God, He is. And if you choose of your own free will, and you certainly have that free will, if you choose of your own free will to violate God's rules, then you're going to have to pay for it. Again, you have the freedom to make all the bad choices you want to make. But you can't do so without also enduring the consequences, and in this case, the, the consequences eternity separated from God in torment. See, because you have a view that, well, I think I should do what I want to do. As long as I'm okay with it, it's no big deal. I want you to think about how long eternity really is. And you see, we all are subject to authority. We go to work, we have a boss. Your boss doesn't let you at work do what you want when you want. You don't get to come to work, say, I'm not going to clock in today, you know, I just don't feel like I should have to do that, and I'm not going to feel like working today. Your boss would fire you. If your boss fires you, then you've under the authority of whoever you pay your rent to. If you stop paying rent, they're going to come and they're going to evict you from your place. There are consequences to rebellion. But when you rebel against God, well, that's the ultimate consequence. I've had a lot of people tell me, Brian, over the years, well, you know, those are really old-fashioned and everybody at my church would know exactly what I'm going to say now. I always say, well, that's okay because God's pretty old. He is the Ancient of Days. We're told to walk in the old paths, the ancient paths. Why? Because those are the ones that were given to us by God himself. Now, the minute you think that God doesn't want you to have any fun, I want you to think about who this God is. He proved he loved you by dying for you. He didn't have to do it. He did it eagerly. And as a result, he can now offer you forgiveness of sins. And if you reject the forgiveness of sins that he offers, then on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, on that day you will be sentenced to an eternity in hell. Now, Brian, people who talk like the tone of your question suggests, obviously, well, I don't believe in that, so it doesn't matter. But, but the fact that you don't believe in it doesn't make it any less real. And so here I'm going to challenge you to be honest intellectually. You find out if Jesus was a real person. You dig in. You find out if Jesus really lived and if he really was murdered. And then if he really was risen from the dead. The evidence is incontrovertible. It's overwhelming. And if all those things were real, then you're dealing with God. Again, you still have the freedom to say, I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. But you don't have the freedom to escape the consequences. And God loves you so much that the thought of you dying apart from him is heartbreaking. I'm glad I'm stuck with the rules from ancient times because in my particular case, I deserve hell, Brian. And I get heaven instead. That's a pretty, pretty loving God. We've got just a little over three minutes now for the rest of the program. Let me see what the next question is. This is from Nick. He says, what does it mean when the devil is referred to as the God of this age? Nick, when I talk about that, I always refer to the little g God of this age. It just means that he's the one in power now. When Adam and Eve sinned, they, in effect, gave authority over to the one who tempted them. And from that day forward, Satan has been in control. Now, God's in sovereign control of all things, but for a time, he's using the devil as his servant, a servant to do evil, but God works all things together. We know that. 
but it just means that he's the one in control. He's the, the power. Satan is behind our kings and queens, our presidents, our our mayors, our governors. He He's the one in control in this world. He's the one who has deceived the world that we have. So it's not the God, big G, but the little G God. This is a God, a little G God who is defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. And um, uh, it means he's in control. I say that remembering that God is sovereign. But if you look around, it sure looks like the devil is in control. That's exactly what it means. It's a reference to uh, Satan being the one who still has been given the freedom to call the shots. Um, Here is a question, a follow-up from an earlier one, and I've got two minutes to do it. It's from Anonymous. What would you do if you found one of your pastors was committing sin? This is in uh, a follow-up to the the question of why Christians are doing things they're not supposed to do. Um, If one of my pastors was committing sin and and was, was willfully doing so, they wouldn't be a pastor any longer. We have to call them out, wanting them to repent. Not angry at them. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But there are sins that disqualify us from ministry. I could do things as as uh, long as I've been doing what I'm doing. I could do things that would disqualify me from being able to do it any longer. And uh, all of my pastors know that. By the way, I just, for sake of clarity, every one of my pastors know that if their marriage isn't right, if their wives sort of go sideways, then they're going to step down because they've got to work on their marriages. Well, we take this calling very seriously, as we all should, but we take our calling as Christians and our calling as pastors very, very seriously. And we want to honor the Lord. And because we're humans, we can find ourselves in difficult situations. Well, what we want to do is help our pastors if they find themselves in one of those difficult situations. We want to help our pastors fix it and get better and be restored. Once more, there are some sins that would disqualify us permanently from being a pastor. But most of the time, that's not the case. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Well, thanks for the calls. Busy phone for the second half. We've been uh, had a great week. We've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Have a great weekend, a safe, happy Labor Day. Uh, remember that Monday's program will be a rebroadcast in honor of the holiday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.